Judges chapter 16. Uh, We're about three quarters of the way through the book, and we're at a very interesting portion in the book. Uh, Probably the part of the book of Judges most people are aware of, uh, Samson and Delilah. So we're going to read of that this morning. So Judges chapter 16, if you've got our church Bible, page 201, this is what Holy Scripture says. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait until the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have been not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, 
his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he's told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down, took him, brought him, and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. In Judges chapter 16, I would like to tell you happy Thanksgiving. And uh, especially if you're visiting with us today, happy Thanksgiving. I, I've always thought that Thanksgiving, I, I think I say this every year, Thanksgiving to me is the most Christian of all the holidays uh, because we're as 
calling on the whole nation to give thanks to God, and I'm very grateful for that. Hopefully, you'll get some time today to thank God, not just thank the universe, but to uh, thank the living God for great gifts that he's given to you, Um, food, drink, family, whatever you can come up with. What a lovely time to pause and to thank him. In in the Christian traditions, uh, by traditions, I mean things that the Bible has not revealed that we're supposed to do, just kind of things that Christians over time start doing. There's, there's some good traditions. There's some bad ones, too. We try to get rid of the bad ones. But in the category of good traditions, one of those in my mind is the expression we often use. Uh, we'll say, thanks be to God. It, it's kind of a funny expression. It's not like kind of a normal way of speaking, but we, we're, we're expressing by that to another person that whatever, usually another person, they're saying something, and we're like, thanks be to God. Like, we're, we're, isn't, isn't God great that he has done this? And I'm just expressing my gratitude and my thanks. Uh, I had to say thanks be to God when I realized that in our preaching through the book of Judges, we would be talking about Samson and Delilah on Thanksgiving Sunday. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, that's very odd uh, because we kind of just go as we go. And uh, the timing of these things was very, very unique. Samson and Delilah neatly aligned with Thanksgiving Sunday. That was curious to me, but I think you're going to want to join me, hopefully, at the end of this sermon in saying thanks be to God after you see, well, after you see what's going on in this passage. So where are we so far? We've been talking about Samson. You'll remember that Samson was a man who was very much making decisions by his eyes and his lustful heart. Uh, He tried to marry a woman of the Philistines. That failed attempt led to this going back and forth, escalating revenge, Philistines against Samson, Samson against Philistines. Finally, that gets down to the uh, infamous jawbone hill where he grabs the donkey jawbone and kills a thousand Philistines and then is about to die from thirst, calls out to God. God brings water out of this arid spot where there should be no water. It's called the spring of one who calls out. And it seems that's the first time, right, that Samson actually called on the Lord. Before that, he's simply being seized by the Spirit, impelled by the Spirit, strengthened by the Spirit, but seems to have really no living relationship with God. But it begins here at least, and it's at this juncture in his life when he sort of formally assumes the office of judge. The book is called Judges. Another word for that would be uh, deliverers, or a judge is a deliverer, not judge with a gavel and a funny white wig, but um, judge in the sense of one who brings deliverance for God's people. So you can, the word can be translated judge, deliverer, savior even. And it says in chapter 15, verse 20, he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Now, how much time elapsed between the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, we don't know. It's likely a lot of years. And as much as Samson served as a kind of deterrent to further Philistine affliction, it's not as if he went, underwent some kind of huge moral you know, self-improvement project in those 20 years. In, in fact, all of his previous temptations are going to lead him into trouble. His, his eye for Philistine women is going to come back to haunt him in this last episode of his life. So we've already read 
what triggers Samson's eventual death, but maybe you didn't notice where it occurred. It was Gaza, and that's important. Uh, That's a Philistine city, and once again, Samson is following his eyes and his lust for Philistine women, and while he sins by hiring a Philistine prostitute, God uses the situation to bring about another deliverance from the Philistines. Now, that's hard to understand unless you sort of remember who Israel is at this point. Israel, the the overarching issue in Israel is that the people of Israel keep turning away from Yahweh to foreign gods, like the gods of the Philistines. And as they do that, they become increasingly Philistineized. They adopt the values of those gods. And they lust for foreign gods. The nation of Israel lusts for foreign gods with the same intensity and frequency Samson lusts for Philistine women. That's the idea. But since God has promised to keep a people for himself, a people after his own name, he keeps intervening through this strange savior, this strange judge, Samson, to keep that spiritual rot from destroying his people once and for all. So there's two episodes in chapter 16. The first one is this. I'll call it the devil's strongholds are no obstacle to God's power. So it begins with Samson went to Gaza. Chapter 16 begins in Gaza and it ends in Gaza. That's an important little bookend. What is Gaza? Gaza is the, essentially the capital of Philistia. The Philistines, not to be confused with modern-day Palestinians, sometimes people think that's the truth, that's no connection. The Philistines are um, descendants of Greeks, actually, who came by sea through the Aegean Sea and settled on the coast there, and cities that Israel, remember, had actually um, vanquished, and they got rid of everybody, but they left them empty, so the Philistines came, found empty cities and thought, we'll live here, and they become a thorn in Israel's flesh for the rest of their days. And so the Philistines don't belong in this land. Who promised this land? God promised this land. To whom? To his people, to the nation of Israel. Philistines should not be there. So in this part of your Bible history, the Philistines are always the bad guys. (laughs) They don't belong. So in that sense, Gaza, which is the capital city of the Philistines, is like the devil's headquarters in the people of God's land which makes you wonder why on earth Israel's judge is taking a vacation there. Judges 6, 16 rather, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw, again the eyes, a prostitute and he went into her. Kids, that means he basically paid a woman to act like his wife. And it was wrong and very, very sinful. And the Gazites were told, so that's interesting, people who are not native to that city tell the Gazites, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place, the the brothel, and and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. And so there's all kinds of things going on here that we have questions about. (laughs) And like so much of Samson's story, there's all kinds of things we just, we don't know. But the thing you have to see here is that Samson is 
betrayed again, this time not by a woman, but by some unknown people in Gaza. They told the Gazites, Samson is here. And that leads to them setting up an ambush, an ambush outside of the brothel, an ambush at the city gate. Who were the non-Gazite tattletalers? Don't know. Were they fellow Israelites? Maybe. Somehow, Samson discovered he's under threat. Again, we don't know how, but he gets wind of the plan to ambush him. So he gets up from the harlot's bed at midnight to sneak past the ambushers and then to sneak out of town. Verse 3, Samson laid till midnight. At midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate and of the city of the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron. Now, that is one of those things in your Bible that's really easy to read and think that was strange and then carry on. <laughs> it, it, it sounds a little bit like a plaque if you were walking around Ripley's Believe It or Not. This man carried gates. Like, I don't know. Uh, but it's actually very, very crucial to what follows. Philistine architecture, we, we know it from excavations today, was, was very distinct. You had very large gates on the outer wall and then kind of a tunnel through the wall into the city. And in that tunnel part would be like the headquarters or the barracks for the soldiers. So here's Samson. He hears that there are people waiting outside the brothel to ambush him. He slips by them. And then he's got to go through that tunnel where they're waiting for him, but apparently asleep or playing cards, who knows what. And for some reason they don't hear, because my mind is going like, how do you quietly remove giant gates? Like these things, could, they could have possibly been about two stories tall. They're huge. So he rips off a door and rips off another door. Then he pulls out the posts that they were hinged upon and the bar that would go across. That's pretty amazing. And it would have been a great feat and an amazing thing, but it doesn't stop there because somehow he managed to pick up all five objects, two doors, three beams, and he carries them to Hebron. That's 62 kilometers away. That's a really, really long hike. And then he props them up on a hill opposite Hebron. What's Hebron? Well, Hebron's kind of, this is before Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Hebron's kind of the functional capital of Israel at the time. So he takes them there, he props them up as if to say to Israel, for as long as I'm alive, there shall be no peace with the Philistines. Imagine somebody ripping off the front doors of the White House and then carrying them and plopping them down on Parliament Hill. President Biden gets up in the morning and is like, ooh, it's a little chilly in here this morning. <laughs> and Prime Minister Trudeau gets up that morning and looks out and goes, oh no. <laughs> it's kind of a declaration of war, right? Gaza is Philistine's leading city. Samson has single-handedly completely exposed and humiliated the enemy's stronghold. They are remarkably vulnerable. There's no gates to protect them. Yahweh is sending notice to the Philistines. You're no match for my power. And the Philistines are thinking, we got to do something about this guy, Samson. You can almost hear the prayers inside the temple to Dagon. Oh, Dagon, give us victory over this man, Samson. Will Dagon hear? 
Number two, the devil's victories are no obstruction for Christ's salvation. So here we get to Samson and Delilah. Here's how I want to look at this. This is probably the most famous story. It got movies and things, right? And you might ask yourself why people are drawn to this part of the Bible. Uh, hmm. Anyway, uh, what I'd like to do is just kind of go through the whole story and comment on some things to help give understanding to what's going on, what's taking place, and then at the very end, make four observations. They will be this. Samson, I'm telling you them ahead of time so you can kind of look for them as we go. Samson's a picture of Israel. Samson is a picture of all of us. Samson is a picture of Jesus. And Samson might be a picture of you. Those four. All right? So here we go, verse four. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. So some length of time occurs between verse three and verse four, between the Gaza Gates episode and this one. And now we're introduced to the first woman in Samson's life who gets a name in the Bible. She's not just a mere object of lust like his first fiancee, not a brothel worker like the prostitute from Gaza. We're told her name is Delilah and Samson loved her. Now Delilah is a murky figure. Her name might be Hebrew, it might be Philistine. It's murky. She lives in the valley of Sorek, which is the travel corridor between Israel and Philistia, which is kind of a loose border, a lot of intermingling. It's murky. And she and Samson, not married, living together, seem to love each other. Murky. In other words, Samson, or rather Delilah, is a lot like Samson. <laughs> Because Samson is a murky figure, isn't he? Kind of half in, half out with the Lord, being used of God to bring about these great deliverances from the Philistines, but then being irresistibly drawn by his lusts to the Philistines. The one thing we can be certain about Delilah, she liked money more than love. And if she was, if she was a Jew, she had the heart of a Philistine. Verse 5, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. It's not possible to know exactly how much money that would be in today's currency, but you need to start around $15 million. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And I'm not going to do mental math in front of all of you, but whatever five times 1,100 is, um, nobody got it? Nobody, nobody wants to do mental math. Okay, fine. It's a lot. It's a lot more than 30 pieces of silver, and it would basically you're around $15 million. So that gives you an idea of how committed the Philistines were to getting rid of Samson. We sent a 1,000 crack troops. That didn't work. He killed them all. We set an ambush. That didn't work. He got out of town and stole our gates. Let's try buying a solution. Now, there have been all kinds of riddles and secrets all through the story of Samson, but now we get to the greatest secret of all. The Philistines have realized if we're going to capture Samson, we have to uncover, we have to expose the secret of his great strength. 
Verse six, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. This is, like, she, she's quoting the lords of the Philistines. They, did you see what they said? They said, seduce him, find out where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. That word humble is the same as subdue in verse six. She's just quoting them. This is really bizarre. She goes up to Samson and says, would you please tell me your secret and how you can be bound and tormented or humbled? It's like she comes up to Samson and says, well, clearly you have this supernatural ability to powerfully defend yourself, but you look like a normal man. I want to know how you do it. What's the secret? Is it vitamins? really good leverage techniques, CrossFit. <laughs> what, what do you do? Tell me how a person could bind you and subdue you. The word subdue, it means afflict, humiliate. It was used to speak of a, of a woman who had been um, wrongly raped. She had been afflicted or humiliated. That's, that's what they're, the word they're using. The word the Philistines use, she's using. How can you be humiliated, afflicted? Remember, the goal of the, for the Philistines is not to kill Samson. It's to capture him and humiliate him, to parade him around as a victory trophy, which they will do. And there's a kind of sexually charged game, gaming going on here between Samson and Delilah. Each one is maneuvering to the kind of limits of danger in order to get what they want. She's being very explicit, and he's, you know, he just as you go through these three episodes, he's, giving, he's getting closer and closer to telling her the truth. So the three temptations, uh, they're familiar enough. First, the, the bowstrings, and that doesn't work. Um, it, it's this bit about the men hiding in ambush, it appears that they didn't actually attack. They probably snuck out the window or something. They were ready. It's hard to know. Maybe he took them out. We don't know. Then there was the new ropes down verses 10 to 12, which is funny because they tried new ropes. Remember the, the guys from Judah, the 3,000 soldiers from Judah? He, he told them, tie me in new ropes, and they did. And then, boink, they fell off, and he killed 1,000 Philistines with a jawbone. That didn't work. Then comes the loom, verse 13. This one's very bizarre. Delilah said to Samson, until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head, that could mean that he had seven prominent braids, or it could, remember that number seven, what does it mean? Typically like fullness, completion. It could just mean if you take all of my hair, which would be very long by this point. Um, he says, if you take the seven locks of my head with a web and Fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. I, for years, I thought this was what all my sisters did in the 1970s. Um, they had these leather oval things and they would put their head in a thing and put that, and then there was a pin that went through it. You remember those? Thanks, Lynn. My sister's here. Uh, I just thought I was making that up. So I kind of thought that's what it was. Like his hair was just getting bound up. And, but no, look at the end. The Philistines, she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. So this is very weird. 
The typical Philistine home would have a loom inside of it. What's a loom? It's that multi-piece contraption. There, you know what a loom is. Uh, but it would be that thing by which you would make clothing or other textiles. So Delilah's got a loom in her living room with a partially finished piece of something on it. That's called the web. The web is whatever material is on the loom, the unfinished bit on the loom. And the stick that he talks about here, if you, like what I did this week, you watch YouTubes of looming, uh, you know, the shrunk, and then you you take a stick and you, you whack it to get the strings tight. So the whacker stick thing. So he says, take all my hair and weave it into the existing web on the loom. Again, we have a lot of questions. How on earth did she get the loom by his head? How on earth do you, do you weave a man's hair into a loom, tightening it, whack, whack with the pin? Apparently, Samson slept like a Calvinist. He has no worries in the world. And he sleeps through the whole thing, and when she wakes him up, he pulls out the weaver's stick, he tosses aside the entire loom itself, he untangles his ponytails out of the web, and he's free. So she tempts him three times to reveal his secret, and three times he fools her. But as Delilah would say, the fourth time is the charm. So now the big transition takes place. We don't know how many days went between the loom episode and this episode, other than uh, there was a lot of days before the final episode. First three temptations might have been really quick, but now there's days and days and days that go on where she's plying her wares. And finally, Delilah pulls out all the stops. Look at verse 15. She said to him, how can you say, I love you? when your heart is not with me. You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard, remember those words? Because they were the same words used of his fiance 20, 30 years earlier, trying to find out the secret of the riddle, the lion riddle, the honey and the lion. She pressed him hard and he gave in. Same phrase, she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. Can I just point out, this is not, uh, an, uh, this, this is not a lesson in love and marriage. This, this is not suggested technique. Just in case you were wondering. This is, in fact, a lesson in what is a very transactional and manipulative relationship, and it's gross. Delilah says to Samson, "Um, if you mean what you say, that you love me, then you'll share your whole life with me. You can almost picture her cuddling up beside him and purring in his ear, if we're in love, if we're really in love, there can't be any secrets between us. We have to be vulnerable with each other. How can we truly love each other if we don't know everything about each other? How can you say 
you love me, when you keep your most important thing from me, why won't you give me your heart? A relationship is built on trust. That goes on for days and days and days, many days. She urged him. I think that's too soft. The word is closer to harassed him, harangued him, unceasingly pleading with him day after day. And Samson's soul was vexed to death. She wore him down and she wore him out. He reached the limits of his patience, which interestingly is the exact same phrase used of God back in Judges chapter 10. In Judges 10, 15, it said, the people of Israel said to Yahweh, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh, and he became impatient, same phrase, over the misery of Israel. God was vexed over Israel's pleading. Samson was vexed by Delilah's pleading. God grew exasperated by Israel's constant pleading and gave in to their request. Even though he knew Israel would betray him, Samson grew exasperated by Delilah's constant pleading and gave in to her request, unsure or not, whether she would betray him. In fact, as a man beholden to foreign women, he likely reasoned that even if she did betray him, he'd be fine because he could take matters into his own strong hands. Verse 17, he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor's never come upon my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. You know, what Delilah understood of all of this is difficult to discern. Perhaps she thought it was all some magic spell. Who knows? But what's important for you and I to see is that when Samson tells her that, he tells us that he knows he's a Nazarite. That's kind of been one of the questions throughout. Does, is he really aware of who he is? We see Samson's self-awareness here. He knows who he is. The angel of the Lord told his parents he'll be a Nazarite to God. Did they tell him? Well, clearly they did. Which only adds to the complexity of Samson, the deliverer. Samson wanted the power of his calling, not the duty of it. He was very careful to keep his Nazarite vow so he could have supernatural strength when he needed it. But he was not careful to stay devoted to God in his heart and proactively use the gift of that strength for the good of God's people. So now you get a better idea of why the Holy Spirit would seize him or rush upon Samson. He was, in many ways, the reluctant savior. He killed Philistines for revenge and pleasure, not redemption and peace. Just like Israel, he wanted all the pleasures of Philistia plus the ready rescue of God on standby. Does that describe you? You want all the pleasures of the world and a little Jesus in your back pocket? Oh, I hope not, friend. Verse 18 says, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he's told me all his heart. You live with somebody long enough and you can tell when they're telling you all their heart, right? And Delilah, the soon-to-be multimillionaire, 
gets out her phone, texts the mafia bosses of Philistia, get the cash ready, I got the secret. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Another betrayal in Samson's life. The woman who promised him so much sells out the man she seduced, just like every idol of yours promises so much, sells you out every time. Somehow she lulls him to sleep, and then she severs his vow by cutting his hair. There has never been such a poignant haircut. Samson, the really good sleeper, slept through the whole thing. He fell asleep with a bountiful quaff. He awoke with a cue ball. (laughs) He fell asleep, a mighty deliverer, and he woke up a normal man. Delilah's true colors are on full display here. She began to torment him, and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, hands and feet. And he ground at the mill in the prison. I mean, this story moves fast. It all happens so quickly. Trampling over his freshly cut hair, the Philistine ambushers seized Samson the way he had seized the gates of Gaza, same word. And it's not until they hold his arms and he realizes he can't break free that the horrible realization sets in Yahweh has left me, and thus my strength is gone. Notice the text says, Yahweh had left him. That was the cause, not that his hair had left him. It wasn't a magic scalp. Samson is seized, bound, in a show of utter disgrace. They gouge out the man's eyes. It might be that the last thing Samson saw was beautiful Delilah counting her money. That's what you get from a Philistine woman. That's what you get from your idols. Sadly, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Hey, if you're a Philistine, great victory deserves a great party, and everybody loves a good party. So for the last 20 years, one man has single-handedly dismantled, destroyed, decapitated us, and now that man is captured, and he is broken. He's not strong anymore. We've blinded him. He's in bronze shackles that have been permanently attached to his hands, his wrists, and his ankles. And now he spends every day being used up as as a broken and a pathetic slave, grinding wheat into flour. That's hard, slow, painful work. It was reserved for the lowest of your slaves. The, The kids' picture Bibles always show it as a really big thing, and he's sort of in the place of the ox you know, pushing the the big stick, but it's more likely that he was simply sitting in the dirt with a grinding mill and just having by hand to grind, grind, grind the wheat into flour that he would never eat. 
What irony that the man who... Hmm. Well, what irony, as he said. In case you missed that, Oh, kids, I got something to think about for a minute. Can you tell me all the animals in the story of Samson? There's a dead lion. Think of another one. Jawbone of a donkey. Dead lion and a dead donkey. Maybe we should stop and pray for dead squirrels. Is that terrible? I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, we're good? Oh, good. All right. Somehow, the Lord would have us now think about Samson and Delilah again. Hmm. I wonder, I wonder if a squirrel ever ran past Samson. <laughs> and if it did, I wonder what it was like for Samson to see that free little squirrel running around. Wait a second, he couldn't. He was blind. I wonder what it was like for Samson to hear the pitter-patter of a little squirrel running around, running around, and just stuck, chained day after day, grinding the wheat. So as we said, the Philistines want to party. They want to rejoice. They want to just, that, look at that pathetic man. He can't even see the squirrels. The prison was likely a part of the temple of Dagon. So they take the man who had burned down all their wheat, who's now forced to grind out their wheat. Verse 23, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. Christians are not the only people who sing. Some Philistine top 40 artist wrote a little, you know, little ditty here. Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. Which is not really a great thing to sing when you think about it. We've been dying from this guy, but they sing it. Not a very catchy tune, but it's their song. They sing it with gusto. Verse 25, when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison. He entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. This is likely the lowest of lows for Samson. The Philistines drag out of the prison a broken, emaciated, deformed, blinded shadow of the man who wreaked havoc on them for 20 years. And we're spared the details of, of what that entertainment was. But maybe it was a slap across the face. Hey, blind man, who hit you? Or maybe it was some rich Philistine taking off his jacket and throwing it over the bare-backed Samson and saying, oh, hail, great deliverer of Israel. They mock him. It was during a lull in the festivities, verse 26, Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. 
it's probable that Samson is in such a weakened state that he actually just needs to lean against something. But what happens next is amazing. Difficult to know whether he'd been planning this or whether it just occurs to him as he's leaning against the pillars. But at some thought, the point, the thought comes into his mind. Now, verse 27, now the house, the temple, was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, which would be like a, a terraced kind of balcony surrounding the, out, the outer perimeter, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. 3,000 above, many more thousands below. Thousands and thousands of who? Philistines, the bad guys. The five lords of the Philistines, all their dignitaries. Who goes to these kind of parties? Rich people, the power brokers, the people of influence, military leaders. And says, as, as Samson is, is resting his hands on those pillars, the, the sound of those thousands and thousands of Philistine voices provokes a thought. Remember verse 22? But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That was intended as a little nugget full of premonition. These stupid Philistines, they ought to have read Numbers chapter 6. Because in God's laying out of how to devote oneself to him, he had made clear that this separation vow, the Nazarite vow, Netzar, to be separated, the separation vow, and a part of that vow is that you never cut the hair on your head. And in his humiliation and in his blindness, Samson now, for only the second time, cries out to God. And in all that brokenness and in all that despair, he devotes himself afresh to Yahweh. Not only has he re- regained his Nazarite hair, he's finally gotten a Nazarite heart. And Yahweh hears his prayer and answers his prayer. Samson called to Yahweh, said, O Lord Yahweh, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. What they meant for evil, God used for deliverance. And in his final act, Samson cried out to God, and God destroyed all the rulers of the Philistines. The great enemy of Israel is decimated. They're not utterly destroyed, but they're conquered to a degree, and they're held at bay. So the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those he killed during his life. It's exactly what the angel of the Lord had promised way back in Judges chapter 13, verse 5, before he was born, when the angel of the Lord said, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And what Samson began in his death, David, King David, will finish in his life. Then verse 31, his family comes and they bury him, an honorable burial in the tomb of his father. The last of the 12 judges. In Israel, things still are going to get worse before they get better. But God is preparing his people for a king. Now, let's go to those four things I mentioned early on. Samson's a picture of Israel, a picture of all of us, a picture of Jesus, and he can be 
a picture of you. First of all, Samson's a picture of Israel. Samson, as a man, is a picture of Israel as a nation. Just as Samson was continually enticed by Philistine women, so Israel was continually enticed by foreign gods. And just as Samson was separated by God from the foreigner Philistines and yet longed to party with them, so Israel was separated by God from all the surrounding nations but longed to party with them. Samson suffers for his self-rule and his self-love and his self-seeking. Israel suffers for her self-rule and self-love and self-seeking. Samson is so committed to his sexual idolatry that he abandons God and God abandons him. Israel is so committed to her idolatry that she she abandons God and eventually God abandons her. Samson was enslaved by the gods that promised him life. Israel was enslaved by the idols that promised her life. Samson is Israel in a single man. Eventually, Samson is brought to a place of weakness, abandonment, and blindness. Israel will be brought to a place of spiritual weakness, abandonment, and blindness. And God forbid that the new Israel, his church, follow in their steps. God forbid that Jesus look at the members of Grace Fellowship Church and say as he said to the Laodicean church, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It is in this sense where we can see the second thing. Samson is a picture of all of us. Not just Israel, but you and me. Samson is us. We're all prone to reject the living God for the silly idols we manufacture in our own hearts, like Samson, who had endless strength and glory at his disposal, but longed for the hookers of Philistia. Some of us waver, worship gods that are no gods, idols of comfort and prosperity and power and wealth and control and money, sex and pleasure. We stray out of God's land into the spiritual Philistia that surrounds us. We think, ah, one night in the hooker's house isn't going to harm anybody. One good outburst of anger at my husband. One lustful glance at that person on the street. One jealous word gossip to a coworker. What can it hurt? All of us are Samson. Our particulars are different, but our problem is the same. And yet, Samson's life does not end in failure, does it? And in that way, Samson is not us, and he is not Israel, but he is a picture of the last and the greatest judge and savior of all. Number three, Samson, Samson is a picture of Christ. Betrayed, abandoned, mocked, 
abused, they brought him to his end, both Samson and Jesus. But just as Samson stretched out his arms to grab those pillars, so our Lord Christ stretched out his arms to save his people. And by his death, he brought us life. And he conquered evil. In Samson's death, he defeated Dagon and prepared the way for a salvation to be fully realized at a later day. And in Christ's death, he defeated the devil and prepared the way for a salvation to be fully realized in a later day. And that's a salvation that all of us need, even Samson. And so that fourth thing, Samson is also a picture of some of us. The way for you to access this great salvation is to exercise the faith of Samson. Yeah, the faith of Samson. Broken by his sins, beaten by his enemies, humiliated by his weakness, he cried out to God and was heard. Faithless, foolish, fallen Samson cried out to God and was heard. If Samson is a picture of Israel, then his life preached a message of hope too, hope in the spite of dismal failure. Israel should have looked at Samson and thought, look at that, even that man found mercy from God. That man had messed up so many times, who loved women more than God, who, who used God's gifts of strength to serve himself rather than to serve others. That idolater, that pervert, that man found mercy. Perhaps then so shall we, and perhaps then, friends, so shall you. I tell you, no matter who you are nor what you've done, if you turn to Christ and believe on him, if you do what Samson did, if you cry out to God from your heart, you will be heard. The author of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And though blind... Samson could see God by faith. Samson had faith? You bet he did. Because the same chapter in Hebrews 11 says this, and what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. While his means were very unusual, his faith was very real, and it was a faith in the same God who provided us a much better, a perfect judge, a great deliverer, a sinless savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews, 11, two, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Your puny, mustard seed-sized faith is perfected by Jesus. 
so that in the great and final last day, the day of judgment, the consummation of the kingdom of God, you will stand before his throne and see him and enter into the joy of your master. You shall behold God face to face forever and ever, world without end, the perfect savior, the greater Samson. He came, he died, he lives, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray.